Hebrews 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. It is clearly one of the longest verses in the entire Bible. Uh, but it is a great verse. And we shouldn't underestimate it for being any less powerful simply because it is short. As Hebrews says earlier in chapter four, uh, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And um, I have no doubt that the Lord has something exactly what each one of us need tonight and will cut right to our hearts, cut through all of the fluff that sometimes gets between us and hearing. Uh, but let's ask God to do that uh, in prayer before we get started. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that your word is so sharp and so clear that it cuts through joints and marrow, spirit and soul. Lord God, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would speak in to each one of our hearts, into each one of our lives tonight. Lord, that let each one of us and let all of us collectively as a church hear your voice from this amazing verse in Hebrews tonight. And I just pray, Lord God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would fill me, that I would speak, and that you would fill all of us with your Holy Spirit, that we would hear uh, what your Spirit is saying to the church tonight. Uh, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are in Hebrews chapter 11 and have been for a good number of weeks. And before we really get too far into it, I just want to say that I love each and every one of you. And it is a blessing to really just be able to share God's love through his word to each one of you tonight. Um, and as I was thinking about this passage, I was trying to come up with a funny opener that had to do with bones. It happens that there's not a lot of funny things that involve bones. I'm sure I could, and maybe if I was a doctor, I would have some more funny stories, but I'm not a doctor, so I don't have any funny stories that involve bones. Um, but I do have a, a somewhat funny story about promises. And as it happens, when I was uh, a children's pastor, which I was for a number of years in Chicago, and I served in Korean-American immigrant churches, and it was a real blessing. I had so much fun. But as a children's pastor, one of the things that you, that you learn, we could say, is that you're very careful when you're, when you're talking with children. And I say careful because when you're talking with children, they will remember everything that you say. Everything. There's almost nothing, even things that you said offhandedly, that they will not remember. And not only will they remember them, they will understand them as a verbal contract, right? And they will hold you to this verbal contract no matter how offhandedly it was given. And they, but they're also sneaky because they don't always remember all of the terms of the contract. They try to forget some of them that are helpful to getting what they want. 
And so a number of times, I would be with my kids, and they're very adorable, right? They're cute, and they're coming, and they would come to me, and they'd be like, Pastor Anthony, you know, you promised that we would go outside, and I said, I did promise that. And the thing was, it was a promise with an if clause, right? If you paid attention during the Bible uh, talk, you and all of us could go outside. Did they pay attention? They did not. So we were not going outside that day, but they would remember it as a promise. And there would be other times that they would remember things. And honestly, I didn't ever put a contingency on them. And they would remember, and they're so good at holding on to promises. And in that sense, actually, they are really great illustration. One, because sometimes when God makes promises to us, he does not put if-then clauses on them. He just makes a promise. And he says, I'm going to do it. And children are very good at holding on to promises when their parents just say, I'm gonna do it. Sometimes even when it's just their pastor, they're very good at remembering. But also, when you're holding on to these promises, that's what we're gonna be talking about today. We're gonna be talking about a man who, despite everything that he went through in life, he held on to the promises more tightly than he held on to anything else. I mean, he had a death grip on these promises, and given how close he was to death once or twice, it was a real, it was a real grip. It was a real grip. And you know, when we read this, this verse here in chapter 11, verse 22, it says, by faith Joseph, as his life was ending, remembered about the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders about his bones. Now, if you're reading it in the Red Bibles, it is normally a very, very good translation, but in this case, it just says, speaks about, I think is how it phrases it, something like that. This is actually making a much less strong point than what the word is in, in Greek. And he actually says in Greek, the author of Hebrews, that by faith Joseph, when his end was near, remembered about the Exodus and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. But before we get to what on earth our faith today has to do with a very old and very dead man's bones, um, and him remembering an event that to him was the future, but to us is a very long time ago, we need to just not speed past the very first sort of basic thing, as his life was ending. Because if we don't think about a little bit what Joseph's life was actually like, we're gonna miss how revolutionary, how amazing, and how encouraging to each one of us, no matter what our life situation is, it is that he can be at the end of his life and remember the Exodus and give orders concerning his bones. And so the first thing about Joseph's life, I don't know if you guys know the story, we're just going to kind of blitz through it real fast. Basically, he's the favorite and for a very short period of time, maybe the youngest kid, but he's got a, a total of 11 brothers. And he's the favorite, though, of, of his dad. And his dad spoils him, and all the brothers know it, and they hate it. And Joseph, when he's a young man, is given dreams by God. And they're quite, they're quite amazing dreams. You know, they're the kind of dreams of grandeur and greatness, of power and authority, of, of just deep impressiveness that, I mean, Joseph just tells his family. 
And he's obviously quite excited and maybe a bit too proud, but he tells all, and his dad kind of says, hey, you know, Joseph, you maybe should have kept this one a little bit to yourself. But these dreams were not just from his head. They weren't his aspirations for himself. They were God's aspirations and God's promises to him. And maybe he didn't talk about them right, but they were the promises. And the promises were that one day, his whole family would bow down in submission before him. Now, a lot of things happened before that even got close to happening. What happened first was his brothers were really very upset, and they were sick of their dad spoiling him and showing the favoritism. And so at one point, the brothers... Uh, Joseph is kind of coming to them in the field and he comes to them and he says he's, you know, coming to check on him, you know. And his brothers are like, when they see him coming, hey, what if we just kill him? That could work, actually, you know. (laughs) And so they all get together, these brothers, and they pick him up and one of them convinces the rest of them just to throw him into the pit. Now, that brother is thinking, okay, I'll come back later and I'll save him. But he goes away, and what happens in the meantime is one of the brothers thinks, why should we kill him when we can make money off of him? There's a bunch of Ishmaelites. They're coming. They're slave traders. We could just sell him to slavery. Then we get money, and he's out of our hair. Win, win, win. He's basically dead to us, and we get paid for it even better. And that's exactly what happens. The slave traders come by, Joseph is sold into slavery, and eventually sold again by the slave traders to slavery in Egypt. Now, in God's remarkable providence, he ends up at uh, a fairly well-to-do man's house. Somebody in sort of the upper echelons of the Egyptian government at the time. Powerful man. And God's favor is on Joseph. Even though Joseph is a slave, it doesn't take him long. God is blessing everything he's putting his hand to. So anything he tries to do, not only is he successful, he's like uber successful. And at some point, the person who runs the the Potiphar, he just thinks, maybe I should let him run the whole house. Maybe I should basically let him run my life, and I'll just do the things I have to do, and just basically eat and have a good time, and he can run everything. Because he's just so good, this is a much better, I basically suck in comparison to him, so let him run everything. And that's what happens. And it goes really well until, see, God also blessed Joseph, not just with a great mind and great hands and great capabilities, but apparently he was also hot. And Potiphar's wife thought he was hot. And so she's like, I've got to get him in bed. And so she tries. She tries real hard. Joseph is like, no, 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 no. I will not do this. I will not sin against God. I will not sin against my master. He's been good to me. No, not going to do it. I am not going to sleep with you. You know, I will live a sexually holy life. At some point, Potiphar's wife just grabs him, and this is how desperately Joseph is walking faithfully in faith with God. He just shrugs off his, his outer coat, outer sort of like garment, and runs and flees. And you're like, man, what a guy. Epic. Thing is, though, Potiphar's wife is thinking, 
This is great. If he won't sleep to me, he can suffer. And so that's what he does. she does. She tells her, her husband, look, I, he came on to me. I, I screamed out for help. And so there's, here's the proof. I've still got the coat right here. Now, how much Potiphar really believed his wife is not clear because he could have had Joseph killed, but did not. Instead, he throws Joseph in prison. And Joseph is rotting in prison for an uh, ambiguous amount of time, but the same thing happens to him in prison. Pretty soon, the prison guard, head of the prison, realizes Joseph seems responsible. Joseph seems like he can handle things. Maybe we should try put him in charge of, oh man, he's really good. Let's put him in charge of everything. I can just basically sit back in my office, kick up my feet, and have a great time, and Joseph can run the prison, and this is great. And so that's exactly what happens. But he's still a slave, and he's still a prisoner, and he still has the promises. And I don't know about you, but if I was Joseph, I would be having a, a little bit of an existential crisis because I'd be like, these dreams were from the Lord. They were from God. He said, you know, all of these great things were going to happen to me. My family's going to bow down to me in, in submission, and I'll be the leader of my family. But I'm not the leader of really, I'm not even a free man right now. I'm not even a sort of, I'm not even just a slave. I'm a, a slave in prison. My family isn't even in this country. I haven't seen them in ages. But then things kind of speed up, and at some point, he tells some people some dream, the meaning of their dreams, because they get some dreams, and so he hears it, and then he says, look, I don't have the answers, but the Lord has the answers and will give me the interpretation of the dreams. So he goes, God gives him the answers, and he tells, because the thing is, the one guy's going to get killed and the other guy's going to live. So he tells the guy who's going to live, look, when you get out, just tell everybody that I helped you out, tell, you know, get me out of here, all right? Just remember me when you're free. Guy doesn't remember. Um, and so he's in prison for longer, waiting, knowing that he's been truly forgotten and that this person has not kept his promise. But eventually, uh, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has a dream. He can't figure it out. He has another dream, can't figure it out. Everybody in the whole kingdom is trying to figure it out. They don't have anything. So the one guy, who's, the, who's sort of in the king's court, he's one of the chief uh, he's the chief cupbearer. So he, at this point, has that, you know, epiphany. Oh, I never mentioned that that guy that helped me. This is a great time for that. There's a guy, he can probably answer and interpret your dream. Do you want to, like, maybe check with him? And so the Pharaoh brings him out. He tells Pharaoh the meaning of the dream, but he says the same thing that he said to the two people in prison. I don't have the answers, but the Lord has the answers, and he'll give you the interpretation of the dreams. So then he does. And Pharaoh thinks, this guy is great. I need somebody who actually can, can do and, and live well in light of these dreams that God has given me. Because the dreams were basically that a terrible famine was going to happen for seven years. But before then, there would be seven years of so much plenty, so much amazing crop success that it would be able to, to cover over the seven years that were really, really terrible famine. And so Pharaoh puts, puts Joseph in charge of administrating all of the kingdom. And so Pharaoh just chills and has a great life, and Joseph is second in command in the country, basically the prime minister. He's making everything happen. He is the most powerful man, and the most wealthy man besides Pharaoh. And so there he is, and during this time, 
they come. Because the famine was so bad and it was so widespread, it wasn't just in Egypt, it spread all the way to where his family was settled, living in tents. And so they come, the, Jacob says, hey, you know, why don't you go and try to get some food for us down in Egypt? So they come down, the brothers, all of the brothers. And who are they brought before? They're brought before Joseph. And what do they do? They bow down before Joseph, just like the Lord promised in his dreams. And eventually even his father will come, and his father will bow, and everyone will bow, just like God said. And by the time Joseph gets to the end of his life, he has had everything. He's had some really rough, rough periods, right? But he's had everything that a man could ever possibly want, that a human being could desire. By the time he gets to the point of his death, he's been reconciled to his families, his family, like his brothers don't want him dead anymore, and he doesn't want them dead. He's even forgiven them. True shock, but he was willing to forgive. He even says something crazy like, look, you planned it for evil, but God planned it for good to save a lot of people's lives, so it's fine. We're, we're good. He's got power. He's got wealth. He's got honor, he's got prestige, he's got all these kinds of gifts and activities, he's got uh, a wife and he's got children and his children have been blessed by Jacob. He's got everything. And the reason why Joseph is such a good example for us to follow is because I don't know what your situation is right now. Maybe you're in one of the really low moments. Maybe you're in a moment of your life like Joseph where you feel oppressed, where you feel imprisoned, where you feel trapped, where you feel forgotten and abandoned. Maybe you're in a place where actually things are going pretty great and you're at the top, you're at a height. You know, you've got power or you've, you've got wealth, you've got the relationship that you want, you've got all these things. But the reason why Joseph is so good is because no matter whether you're in a dark place right now or a really, really great place, Joseph helps us to see where our deepest satisfaction should truly come from. Because he gets to the end of his life. And what does it say? It says he remembers the Exodus and gives instructions about his bones. Now, we're going to get into what that means in full, but what it mainly has to do with in big picture is that what Joseph is satisfied is not with his power, and it's not with his wealth. It is not with his family, his wife, his children. It's not with his brothers and his father, because his dad is dead at this point. It's not with honor, it's not with a name, it's not with all of the things that, that the world that we live in says, this is what, what life is about, this is what you should value, this is what should, should satisfy you. And Joseph gets to the end of his life and he says, all I'm really satisfied with, what I, re what I really deeply need, what I want more than anything else, it's not wealth, it's not power, and it's not because he doesn't have these things, it's because he sees something deeper, something richer, something that he's had since he was a young man, and that is the promises of God. And he holds on to those promises, and he won't let go. 
And even as he is dying, he says, the promises of God are more to me than all the wealth, than all the land, than all of the family, than all of everything that I could possibly find in this world by itself. What I deeply want is I want God himself, and I want to participate in God's amazing promises and plan and will. I want to be with God and be doing what God wants me to be doing. That's all I care about. That's all. So the first thing I, I'm, I'm going to invite us to do is I say, let's by faith today, let's be satisfied not with the world's priorities, but with God's promises. That's what Joseph teaches as, as he's dying, which is quite a thing to teach. But he remembers, he remembers because the thing is, if it was just about the land, and we're going to get to this, he talks about the bones, and he talks about the exodus, and the thing is, if it was just about the land, if that's all it was about, if it was this small little thing, he could have gone back. In fact, that's exactly what Hebrews says just a little bit before. So if you go back to verses 9 and 10, uh, it will say, by faith. He made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs, this is talking about Abraham, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And then you skip down to verse 13, and it says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of, a, of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to go back. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And see, Joseph is holding on to this same promise. He doesn't just want the promised land. He wants the promises of God. Because if it was just about the land, he is the most, one of the most powerful people in the world at that time. He could go back. He could have a big house in the promised land. But what he wants is not simply to be in the land, but to be in the land where God wants him to be, when God wants him to be there. What he wants is the will of God and the promises of God. And he is not willing to use his power, his wealth, his prestige to take a shortcut to the promises of the Lord God Almighty. He is willing to trust the Lord. by dying in faith, just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob looking ahead to a promise that is much bitter, much bigger, and much better. So what does he remember? The first thing he remembers is the Exodus. And why does he remember the Exodus? First of all, we just need to pause there. It's pretty impressive. He remembers the future. Don't lose, don't lose the, the amazing paradox of this statement. He is looking at the future. It has not happened yet. And he looks at it and he says, I can remember that. That's an epic day. I'm really excited. I remember. He can see it. He can taste it. He can savor it. He loves it. He knows it. And it is a promise. And it is more real to him than the present. So much more real. It's as real as the past. And so he can look and he can remember the Exodus. And you might think, well, you know, how is this a promise? Well, in fact, this promise has shown up a couple different times. And the first time it shows up is way at the beginning. 
So if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 to 16, uh, it'll pop up on the screen. And so then... This is Abraham. So this is the first person. God is giving the promises. And God says, and this is a really epic story. You'll have to go back and look at it. This is one of those times where God doesn't put any if-then clauses. Just like me with the kids, sometimes I didn't do it, right? Just like all of us, sometimes there is no if-then. There's just, this is what's going to happen. And it was a promise. And God gave this promise to Abraham. And he says, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So back when God was giving the promises to Abraham, at the very beginning, he told Abraham, look, I'm giving you this promise and to your descendants but there's gonna be a time, 400 years, that your your descendants will be enslaved somewhere else. And actually, that promise gets reiterated. And so he even goes into Genesis 48, uh, chapter, chapter 48, verses 21 through 22, and it will also pop up. And this is what happens, but this time, it's Jacob. And it's Jacob at his deathbed, so right before he does all of the blessing that we, that we kind of talked about and he leans and he's worshiping on his staff in that section we talked about last week, right a little bit before all of the, the blessing of the, of the sons of Israel, what happens is he says, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you, I give one more ridge of land than to your brothers, the ridge I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. So he, just before, so when Joseph is dying, he's thinking back to a promise that wasn't just made to Abraham, but it was made to Jacob, and it was the promise that Jacob passed on to him. And he held on to that promise And he remembered the exodus. And the truth is, today there is, for a lot of us, probably a need for an exodus. I don't know what's in your life right now, but maybe you're really suffering. Maybe you feel trapped, imprisoned. Maybe you are being oppressed. Maybe you are being persecuted. Maybe things are quite bad. Maybe your health is bad and you need a deliverance. But the amazing thing is that Joseph does not just look back to an exodus in the past. He looks back to an exodus in the future. And the exodus that he looks to in the future is our past. So we look into the past and we see the exodus and we say, God kept the promise. Joseph died, but the day came when, this, when the Israelites were set free from slavery in Egypt. Miraculous things happened. God drew them out, and he put them there, and, he's, and he brought them into the promised land. But that wasn't even the end of the Exodus. That was only the first Exodus. Because Jesus Christ came, and he led not just the Jews, but the entire world in an exodus from slavery to sin, to slavery to death, slavery to the devil. And in fact, the Lord Jesus set people free, more free than any any human embodied exodus could do, because Jesus set free 
just once, not just the body, not just bodies, but in our souls. He set people free from, from things that you can never overcome with, with violence and power. You can never conquer sin with violence. You can never conquer the devil with violence. You can never conquer death with violence. But what Jesus liberates us from is from sin and death and the devil, and he sets us free. And it is an abolition far beyond anything. But also, and this is the amazing thing, there is another exodus coming. Each one of us is waiting, longing, hoping for one day that promise that God has for us in Jesus Christ, the promise of his return. And when he comes, there will be an even greater exodus because we will be set free from a world that is filled with corruption and destruction and, and maybe we have been set from sin and death and the devil, but the, the sin and death and the devil are everywhere outside. And when Jesus comes back again, they will be removed from all of the earth from all of the new creation, and there will be a new creation. Everything will be set free. And it's going to be a great day. So let's remember the exodus by faith. This brings us to our final point. By faith, let's live into and die into the promise. This is where we get into the weird bit about the bones. Look, he is so certain of this promise of the Exodus. He's so certain and he wants to participate in the promises of God so much. He's like, I don't care if I'm dead. I still want in. I still want in. So, you make a promise to me. It's very funny because it says that he remembers the Exodus. But when you go back to Genesis and you read that passage in Genesis, it says, he is telling his brothers, he's like, God will remember you. He will remember your people and he will set you free. So he remembers that God will remember. And then he tells them and he makes them promise and he says, God will come, God will remember you, and when he does, you take my bones with you. You make me promise. God's made a promise to us, now you make a promise to me. When God comes and he keeps his promise, you keep yours and you take my bones and you bring them with you into the promised land because I want in. That's how, that's how invested Joseph is in the promises. And you may think, yeah, but if I die, like, I don't think anybody needs to ship my bones to Israel. That's true. You probably don't want to ship your bones to Israel. Unnecessary, unnecessary. But I will say this, one of the reasons why Christians have historically been buried as opposed to cremated is because we have been looking forward to the promise of the resurrection and to the promised land, an even greater promised land, a promised land built by God in the new creation. And, they, and, the, and what Christians did when they, when they chose to be buried instead of being cremated or whatever else that they could have done to your body, the reason Christians chose that is because they wanted to say, when the resurrection comes, I want it to be clear that I want in. Sometimes it's even as simple as just how you choose to take care of your body after you're dead that can proclaim and live into the promises. This may be not the only way, but it is how Christians in the past lived into the resurrection and participated in the promise. 
But as we close, I think another important question is the legacy that we're gonna leave. The truth is, I don't know how much longer I will be here, and none of you probably know exactly how much longer you will be here either on the earth, yes, but also at HTC. And one question that I kind of was wrestling with as I was pouring over that text, this text before us, is what would it look like for for me to give instructions concerning my bones? Because the legacy of faith that Joseph left was so strong that 400 years, however many exact years it was later when, from this day that he died, when they were set free from Egypt, they kept their promise and they brought his bones to the promised land. So one question for us is what legacy of faith are we gonna leave for the generation that comes after us? What does that look like? Because the truth of the matter is, if each one of us said, like Joseph, I am all in, even even to death, and even in my death, I want to point the way to Jesus. If we were that committed, if we were willing to go through all the ups and downs of waiting and trusting for God's providence and his promises, the amazing thing is, Clapham would never be the same. Because we're thousands of years later talking about Joseph's faith. If we had that kind of faith, thousands of years could pass and there could be a legacy of faith for future sons and daughters of God to inherit from us. Let's pray. God, we just ask that you would give us a legacy of faith. We ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would set us free. Lord God, we need some of us desperately in Exodus today. We need you to set us free from sin, from death, from the devil. But sometimes we also just need freedom from a lot of the other terrible things that happen to us in life. And so God, if there's anybody who needs an Exodus in this church today, I pray that you would set them free and bring them out. But God, I also just pray for all of us I pray that whether we are rich or poor, whether we're powerful or weak, whether we have everything that the world aspires to or nothing, I pray that above all we would only be satisfied with your promises. So Lord God, keep your promises to us. We remember them now. You remember them soon. In Jesus' name, amen.